Have you ever felt discouraged by a sermon? I'm sure most of you have. And sometimes that's because of the preacher. Sometimes it's down to him. But often, it's simply because God's word brings such a challenge to us that we feel floored by it. We feel floored by how far we fall short of what's being asked of us. We despair sometimes of ever being what we are called to be. These past few weeks, we've been in a section of Romans that could leave us feeling floored. We could end up overwhelmed by what's asked of us. The section we are in in the letter to the Romans is about living the gospel. It started back in chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul said, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He was calling us to lives of total worship. And Paul went on to flesh that out for us. He told us that being living sacrifices means refusing to conform to the pattern of this world. It means renewing our minds and playing our part in the church body, using our gifts, doing good. We learned that being a living sacrifice means submitting to human government because God has put human government in place. Being a living sacrifice means getting ready for Christ's return. We do that by putting off ways of life that belong to the darkness and putting on ways that belong to the light. Paul described that as clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, being conformed to his image. Then over the last two weeks, we've heard the command to love one another. And the way to do that has been set out in quite a bit of detail for us. Romans 12 to 15 has given us plenty of helpful material on living the Christian life. But the danger is that we go away feeling discouraged by it. The danger is we feel so challenged and we see how much is being asked of us and how far we fall short that we feel this little wave of despair wash over us. And so we decide we'd really better just ignore what we've heard. But it would be a tragedy if we looked at this picture of the Christian life and went away from it unchanged. Because it seemed to us like an impossible picture. It would be a tragedy if we went away saying to ourselves, who could love like that? Who could give and serve like that? What church could ever be a community like that? Paul knows the danger of despair for us here. And so as he closes this section of teaching, he wants to give us hope. And he does that by pointing us to the God of hope. 
He wants to inspire hope in us by reminding us what God is doing. Remember a promise that Jesus made. He said to his disciples, I will build my church. And he didn't just mean he would build it numerically by adding new people. Of course, he did mean that, but he was also promising to build the unity and maturity and holiness of his church. He promised to do that, and he is keeping his promise. That's what Paul wants to remind us of this morning. So turn with me in the book of Romans to chapter 15. In the church Bible, it's page 1141, and in the large print, 1765. We're going to read this morning from chapter 15, verse 7, down to verse 16. Remember, Paul has just written at length about loving one another. And now he says to these believers, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. As Paul closes this section about our obedience to God, he wants to remind us that God himself is our unifier and God is our sanctifier. So first of all, God is our unifier. In verses 7 to 13. Remember the situation Paul is writing to. The church in Rome is made up of Christians, some of them from Jewish backgrounds, and some of them from Gentile backgrounds. And those different backgrounds give rise to plenty of other differences of outlook and conviction and opinions about how things ought to be done. Paul is writing to a very diverse group of people. 
from a human point of view, actually, they're impossibly diverse. And when we notice the effort Paul has made calling them to love one another, it seems likely there are some tensions coming to the surface in this church. And Paul knows it's not enough to give them guidance about getting along with each other day to day. That kind of guidance is crucial. But it's not enough. Paul knows these people need reminding of the bigger picture. They need a vision of God's plan for history and what he's doing in history. So that's what Paul does. He's finished now giving guidance separately to the weak and the strong. Now he speaks to the whole church body. And he says, look up. Look up from your squabbles and your tensions. See what God is doing. Verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Paul says, accept one another. And we came across this word back in chapter 14. We notice then, Paul's not just calling them to tolerate one another, he's calling them to take one another into their hearts. To treat each other with the love and concern of true brothers and sisters. And the reason for that is that we have all been accepted by Christ. Now Paul is not pointing to Christ as an example here. Jesus is an example, but that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying, look at the kind of acceptance Christ showed and then try to copy it. No, the point is, Christ has accepted these people all around you. It's a fact. He has brought them into his family. So as a fellowship, your diversity of background and outlook, that is evidence of God's unifying work. Nothing but God could have brought you all together. And Paul says God is to be praised for this thing he's done. It is no accident that you are surrounded by people who are different from you. We're not to see it as something to fret over or something we have to try and fix. It's something for us to celebrate. It's evidence God is at work. One writer explains it to us like this. Each of us must recognize that we have been received by Christ as a matter of pure grace. And that same grace has reached out and brought into the kingdom people from all kinds of races, nations, and backgrounds, and with all kinds of prejudices. On the surface, The church very often looks messy. But that is evidence God has done a deeper work in our hearts. Without God's work, people this different would never end up together. God is to be praised for this thing he has done. And we praise him by accepting those he has accepted. 
So when the Bible calls us to accept one another, when that challenge comes to us, we are not being called to bring about something new by our own power. We're being called to recognize what God has already done. He's brought very different people together in Christ. All we have to do is learn to celebrate what God has done. My best man was called Brent. He's from California, and he's very different from me. One of the differences is that he has an ability to celebrate things that just frustrate me. The two of us worked together for a couple of years with inner city kids in the U.S. I was white, as I still am, Northern Irish, and a bit slow off the mark, as I still am. And during those couple of years, I was trying to oversee a group of smart, streetwise African-American and Latino kids. And every day they ran rings around me. And sometimes at the end of the day, I would be fuming with frustration about it all. I'd tell Brent how everything had gone wrong that day. And he'd be saying, man, what personalities, what creativity. I was fed up with them. I looked at them and could see only annoyances. Brent looked at them and he saw a wealth of God-given potential in each one of them. The things that frustrated me pointed him to God's creativity. I mention that because here Paul is calling us to a similar kind of outlook. In the church. When you look around at the different people And the different personalities here don't shake your head in frustration and think, why can't they all be like me? No, we're to look around and say, isn't it amazing that God would bring a crew like this together? All of these outlooks and backgrounds and temperaments. Isn't it amazing that God would unite us as one family in Christ. Isn't he worthy of praise for this? Remember, the main differences in the church in Rome stemmed from part of the church having a Jewish background and part having a Gentile background. And here, in the verses that follow, Paul gives the big picture of God's work to unify Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul starts with the Jews. He says God made promises to the patriarchs, those were the founding fathers of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God made a promise to Abraham. 
He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And God confirmed that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, it looked like those promises were being fulfilled as Abraham's descendants became a larger and larger nation. Eventually, a nation with a land of their own. But again and again, the New Testament tells us those blessings were just preliminary. God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled ultimately through Jesus Christ. It's in Christ that God's truth is shown, meaning his truthfulness, his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. Christ came and died so Abraham's descendants could receive God's greatest blessings, sins forgiven, peace with God, and a future share in the glory of God. The Gentile believers in Rome need to know your Jewish brothers and sisters have been saved by God's work. They're here in this fellowship because of him. And moreover, verse 9 says, God's work in saving Jews, like Paul and Peter and the other apostles, God's work among those Jews was so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That happened as these Jewish preachers took the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. So the Jews in the fellowship in Rome need to know the Gentiles are not intruders in God's people. God has reached out and brought them in too. It was always God's plan, they need to know, to unify Jews and Gentiles into one people of God. And to prove that point, Paul then quotes from every part of the Jewish scriptures. What we know today as the Old Testament is divided by the Jews into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Three major sections. And in verses 9 to 11, Paul quotes from each part. First of all, in verse 9, he quotes from the writings. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Originally, those words were sung by King David. And here, Paul seems to be applying them to God's greatest king, King Jesus. Praising his father for bringing Gentiles into his kingdom. Then in verse 10, Paul quotes from the law. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. That's a prediction that Gentiles would join their Jewish brothers and sisters in praising God. Then in verse 11, Paul quotes again from the writings. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And finally, Paul quotes from the prophets in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Jesse was King David's father. 
And throughout the Old Testament, there was a recurring promise that a descendant of David would rule over not just Israel, but over the nations. Paul wants the believers in Rome to see this big picture. He wants them to see it is no accident you've been brought together with people different from you. It's not something you're to grit your teeth and try to put up with. It's certainly not something to try and wriggle out of. It is the work of God the unifier. He's to be praised for this state of affairs. It's something to be celebrated. Thank God the church isn't just for one nationality or one social status or personality type or viewpoint. The church is for all those who come under the rule of Christ the King. That's the point of verse 12. Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse. His kingdom consists of all those who trust in his atoning death and submit to his kingly authority. It has to be both. We can't trust in him without submitting to his authority. And today he exercises that authority through his written word, the Bible. Jesus affirmed the whole Bible as God's true and living word. We can't have Jesus as our king if we reject the authority of his word. So verse 12 reminds us that our diversity is not an absolute diversity. We are diverse kinds of people, but God has united us by bringing us to trust in Jesus' work and submit to Jesus' word, the Bible. And that's why Paul prays in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 14, Paul told us joy and peace are characteristics of the kingdom of God. So as we look around at one another this morning, And as we realize that God has brought us together under one king, then we can have great hope. For relationships filled with joy and peace. We know the God who united us under the rule of Christ will give us growing unity through the Holy Spirit of Christ. We know that God's purpose didn't end with the bare fact of bringing us together. God has a much bigger agenda than that for us. He is forming us into an eternal praise choir. Paul hinted at that earlier in chapter 15. He spoke about the church glorifying God with one mind and one voice. 
And the book of Revelation gives us the full picture of that. Revelation describes a great multitude finally gathered around God's throne from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they are singing together to God and to the Lamb. That's what's ahead of us. That's what God is bringing us towards. So when the call to love one another seems just too hard, remember that picture. God, our unifier, is going to make that picture a reality one day. We can trust that he's already working towards it. It's not just going to happen like that on the final day. So we are to celebrate the fact that God has brought us together. And we're to realize these brothers and sisters are the instruments God is using to make us holy. In the final verses of our passage, Paul says the God who's our unifier is also our sanctifier. And he's using these brothers and sisters to do his work. Verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Remember how this section of Romans began. It began with this command back in chapter 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then notice how the section ends. Here in chapter 15, verse 16. Paul speaks of the Gentiles becoming an offering acceptable to God. Sanctified, that's literally made holy. By the Holy Spirit. The point is, we are called to holiness. We've been seeing that in recent weeks. And God Himself is at work to make us holy. And Paul wants us to see God makes us holy in fellowship with others. But some commentators, when they come to this passage, they miss that. And because they miss it, they have a problem with verse 14. What's their problem? Well, they just can't believe Paul is telling the truth about the church in Rome. He says here, the Roman Christians are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. One commentator says, Paul is, of course, engaging in a little diplomatic hyperbole here. Other commentators say Paul's words are just flattery. 
are just politeness. He doesn't really mean this, they think. So why won't they accept Paul's words at face value? Simply because they think, in the previous chapters, he's given these people so much to work on. He can't possibly believe such positive things about them. But ask yourself this. Is Paul a man given to flattery? Or even diplomacy? Is that the picture we get of Paul in the New Testament? Not at all. In the book of Acts, and in his 13 letters, we see a man whose regular habit is to call a spade a spade. We have no reason to think Paul is saying something he doesn't mean here. In fact, he says in verse 14, I am convinced these things are true of you Roman Christians. Why is he so confident? Because he knows God is at work in God's church, making the church holy. Now Paul is not saying that every individual believer is full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct. He's saying the church body has those things. No individual believer is ever the finished article. But as a body, we have what we need in goodness, knowledge, and competency to instruct and challenge. The Holy Spirit is producing in us more of what we need to make us together an offering acceptable to God. Now, the church as a whole has not always got that point. Throughout the history of the church, there have always been Christians who've wanted to retreat into splendid isolation to become holy. Permanent solitude. But that's not the way holiness comes about. God makes us holy as part of a community of believers. not in a cave somewhere by ourselves or our living room by ourselves. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are God's sanctifying instruments in our lives. God makes us holy as we learn to live and worship with people who are very different from us. He uses those people to chip off our rough edges He uses them to challenge us and teach us and mold us. So don't look around the church and say, let me out of here. Look around and say, how will God use these people to make me holy? And it's often the case, the people we most want to avoid are the ones God will use most powerfully for our sanctification. It may not be because they just amaze you with insights from God's word. 
It may be because in learning to take those people into your heart, the Holy Spirit teaches you about the patience God has shown to you. And the grace God continues to pour out on you. When God gives us commands to pursue unity and holiness, he is calling us to pursue things he is already bringing about. So please don't despair about the things you're called to. Don't abandon it all, it's just too hard. Realize that God is working to build his church. Not just in numbers, but in maturity. In beauty. He's washing out the stains and ironing out the wrinkles. So as you listen to God's word, offer your own life to him again. And when he shows you through his word new ways to obey him, Move forward as you can with those things. Give it your all and do it with great hope. Because the Bible tells us in all our work, it's God who's at work among us. We're going to praise God in just a moment for what he has done in each of us as individuals. And we're going to praise him for what he's going to do with us as a people. One day we're going to stand united and faultless in God's presence. And we will honor him together in perfect song on that day. Let's stand to sing.